0: Chapter 41, Part 2 of The Countess of Rudolstadt. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Countess of Rudolstadt by George Sand, translated by Francis G. Shaw. Chapter 41, Part 2 After the celebration of the marriage, and although the night was far advanced, they proceeded to the ceremonies of the definitive initiation of Consuelo into the Order of the Invisibles. And afterwards, the members of the tribunal having disappeared, they wandered under the shade of the sacred wood, but soon returned and seated themselves around the banquet of fraternal communion. The prince, brother orator, presided at it and took upon himself to explain to Consuelo its profound and touching symbols. This repast was served by faithful servants, affiliated to a certain grade in the order. Carl presented Mateus to Consuelo, and she at last saw uncovered his honest and pleasant face, but she remarked with admiration that these estimable ballets were not treated as inferior by their brothers of other grades. No distinction prevailed between them and the eminent persons of the order, whatever might be their rank in the world. The Serving Brothers, as they were called, filled with goodwill and pleasure the offices of butlers and stewards, they performed the necessary service as assistants qualified in the art of preparing a festival, which they moreover looked upon as a religious ceremony, as a Eucharistic Passover. They were therefore no more degraded by this office than were the Levites of the temple by presiding over the details of a sacrifice. Each time they had supplied the table, they came and took their seats at it, not in places set apart and isolated from the others, but in intervals reserved for them among the guests. All called them and found a pleasure and a duty in filling their cups and plates. As in the Masonic banquets, the cup was never raised to the lips without invoking some noble idea, some generous sentiment, or some August patronage. But the cadence sounds, the childish gestures of the Freemasons, the mallet, the slang of the toasts, and the vocabulary of the utensils were excluded from this festival, at once cheerful and grave. The serving brothers maintained a demeanor respectful without servility, and modest without constraint. During one service, Carl was seated between Albert and Consuelo. The latter remarked with delight, besides his sobriety and good manners, an extraordinary progress in the understanding of this good peasant. "'who could be educated by the heart "'and imbued with healthy religious and moral notions "'by a rapid and admirable education of the feelings. "'Oh, my friend,' said she to her husband, "'when the deserter had changed his place, "'and Albert again drew to her side. "'That is then the beaten slave of the Prussian militia, "'the savage woodcutter of the Burm "'the assassin of Frederick the Great.' Enlightened and charitable teachings have succeeded in so short a time in making of him a sensible, pious, and just man instead of a bandit who the ferocious justice of nations would have driven to murder and corrected with the assistance of the whip and the gallows. Noble sister, said the prince, seated just then on the right of Consuelo, you had given, at Rosewall, some grand lessons in religion and clemency, to that heart distracted with despair, but endowed with the most noble instincts. His after-education was rapid and easy, and when we had anything good to teach him, he trusted to it at once, saying, That is what the Signora told me. Be certain that it would be more easy than is thought to enlighten and render moral the rudest men if we wished them well. To elevate their condition and to inoculate them with respect for themselves by beginning with loving and esteeming them requires only a sincere charity and respect for human dignity. Still, you see that these honest people are initiated only into the lower grades— That is because we consult the extent of their understandings and their progress in virtue to admit them more or less into our mysteries. Old Matthias has two grades more than Karl, and if he does not pass that which he now occupies, it will be because his mind and heart have not been able to go any further. No lowness of extraction, no humbleness of social condition will ever deter us. And you see here Gottlieb, the shoemaker, the son of the jailer of Spandau, admitted to a grade equal to your own, although in my house, from taste and from habit, he performs subaltern services. His vivid imagination, his art of his study, his enthusiasm for virtue, in a word, the incomparable beauty of the soul which inhabits that ugly body soon rendered him worthy to be treated as an equal and a brother in the interior of the temple. There was almost nothing to be communicated in ideas and virtues to that noble child. He had too much, on the contrary. It was necessary to calm in him an excess of exaltation and to treat him for moral and physical maladies which would have led him to madness." The immorality of his environment and the perversity of the official world would have irritated without corrupting him. But we alone, armed with the spirit of Jacob Burm, and the true explanation of his profound symbols, could convince without disenchanting him and guide aright the wanderings of his mystical poetry without chilling his zeal and his faith. "'You will remark that the cure of his soul has reacted upon his body, "'that his health has been restored as by enchantment, "'and that his odd face is already transformed. "'After the repast, the guests resumed their cloaks "'and walked upon the gentle declivity of the hill, "'which was shaded by the sacred grove. "'The ruins of the old chateau, reserved for the trials, "'overtopped this beautiful spot.' "'of which Consuela by degrees recognized the paths "'she had hastily run through in a stormy night "'a short time before. "'The abundant fountain, "'which escaped from a rustic grotto "'cut in the rock "'and formerly consecrated to her superstitious worship, "'ran murmuring among the thickets "'towards the bottom of the valley, "'where it formed the beautiful stream "'which the captive of the pavilion knew so well. "'Alleys,' "'covered by nature with a fine sand, silvered by the moon, "'crossed under these beautiful shades, "'where the wandering groups met, "'intermingled and exchanged pleasant conversation. "'High, open-work barriers bounded this enclosure, "'the vast and rich kiosk of which passed as a cabinet of study, "'the favourite retreat of the prince, "'forbidden to all idlers and curious persons.' The serving brothers walked also in groups, but following the barriers and watching in order to give notice to the brethren in case of the approach of any profane person. This danger was not much to be feared. The Duke appeared to be occupied only with Masonic mysteries, as in fact he was so secondarily. But Freemasonry, was then tolerated by the laws and protected by the princes who were or thought themselves initiated. No one suspected the importance of the higher grades, which, from degree to degree, terminated in the tribunal of the invisibles. Moreover, at this moment, The ostensible fete, which illumined at a distance the façade of the ducal palace, engrossed the numerous guests of the prince too much for them to think of leaving the brilliant halls and the new gardens for the rocks and ruins of the old park. The young Mark of a bereith, an intimate friend of the duke, did for him the honors of the fete. He had feigned a slight indisposition in order to disappear. And immediately after the banquet of the invisibles, he went to preside at the supper of his illustrious guests in the palace. On seeing those lights shine in the distance, Consuelo, resting upon Albert's arm, remembered in and naively accused herself before her husband, who reproached her for it, with an instant of cruelty and of irony towards the beloved companion of her childhood." Yes, it was a culpable impulse, said she, but I was very unhappy at that moment. I was resolved to sacrifice myself to Count Albert, while the malicious and cruel invisibles threw me once more into the arms of that dangerous Liverani. I had death in my soul. I again met with delight him from whom I should be obliged to separate with despair and Marcus wished to distract me from my sufferings by making me admire the handsome Anzaletto. I should not have believed I could have seen him again, with so much indifference, but I thought myself condemned to the trial of singing with him, and I was ready to hate him, for thus snatching from me my last instant, my last dream of happiness. Now, my friend, I shall be able to see him again without bitterness, and to treat him with indulgence. Happiness renders us so good and so merciful. Perhaps I may some day be useful to him, and inspire him with a serious love of art, if not with the taste for virtue." "Why despair of it?" said Albert. "Let us await him in a day of misfortune and abandonment." Now, in the midst of his triumphs, he would be deaf to the voice of wisdom, but let him lose his voice and his beauty, and we may perhaps obtain possession of his soul. Will you undertake that conversion, Albert? Not without you, my Crisuelo. Do you not fear, then, the remembrances of the past? No, I am so presumptuous as to fear nothing. I am under the whole influence of the miracle. And I also, Albert, I could not doubt myself. Oh, you have good reason to be tranquil. The day began to dawn, and the pure morning air brought forth a thousand exquisite odors. It was one of the most beautiful days of summer. The nightingales sung under the foliage and answered each other from hill to hill. The groups which formed every moment around the newly married couple far from being troublesome to them, added to their pure transports the delight of fraternal friendship, or at least of the most exquisite sympathy. All the invisibles present at this festival were made known to Consuelo as the members of her new family. They were the elect of the talent, the intelligence and the virtue of the order. Some illustrious in the world without, others obscure in that world, but illustrious in the temple by their labors and their light. Plebeians and patricians mingled in a tender intimacy. Consuela was to learn their true names, and the more poetical ones which they bore in the secret of their fraternal relations. They were Vesper, Elops, Peon, Hylus, Euralus, Elerophon Never had she seen herself surrounded by so numerous a selection of noble souls and interesting characters. The recitals which they made to her of their labors in proselytism, of the dangers they had braved and the results they had obtained, charmed her like so many poems, the reality of which she would not have believed reconcilable with the course of the insolent and corrupt world she had passed through those testimonials of friendship and esteem, which partook of tenderness and effusion, and which were not stained with the least vulgar gallantry or the least insinuation of dangerous familiarity. That elevated language, that charming intercourse, in which equality and fraternity were realized in their most sublime aspects. That beautiful golden dawn which rose upon life at the same time as in the sky, All this was like a divine dream in the existence of Consuelo and of Albert. With arms intertwined, they did not think of withdrawing from their beloved brothers. A moral rapture, sweet and soft as the morning air, filled their chests and their souls. Love dilated their bosoms too much to cause them to thrill. Trank related the sufferings of his captivity at Glatz and the dangers of his flight. Like Consuelo and Hayden in the Bermavald, he had traveled through Poland, but in severe cold weather, covered with rags, with a wounded companion, the amiable Shellus, whom his memoirs afterwards depicted to us as the most gentle of friends. He had played upon the violin to earn his bread, and had served as a minstrel to the peasants, as had Consuelo on the banks of the Danube. Then he spoke to her in a low voice of the Princess Amelia, of his love and his hopes. Poor young Trank! He did not foresee the horrible storm which was gathering over his head, any more than did the happy pair, destined to pass from this beautiful dream of a summer's night to a life of combats, of deceptions and sufferings. The porporino sang under the cypresses an admirable hymn, composed by Albert to the memory of the martyrs of their cause. Young Benda accompanied him on the violin. Albert himself took the instrument and ravished his hearers by a few notes. Consuela could not sing. She wept with joy and enthusiasm. The Count de St. Germain related the conversations of John Huss and Jerome of Prague with so much warmth eloquence and probability that on listening to him it was impossible not to believe he had been present. In such hours of emotion and transport, sad reason does not defend itself against the fascinations of poetry. The Chevalier d'Homme, depicted, in terms of sharp satire and an enchanting taste, the meannesses and follies of the most illustrious tyrants of Europe the vices of courts, and the weakness of that social scaffolding which it seemed to enthusiasm could so easily be bent under its burning flight. Count Goloquin, painted in a delightful manner the great soul and the artless oddities of his friend Jean-Jacques Rousseau, that philosophical personage he would now be called eccentric, had a very beautiful daughter whom he educated according to his ideas, and who was at once Emil and Sophia, now the handsomest of boys, now the most charming of girls. He was to present her to be initiated and entrusted to the teaching of Consuelo. The illustrious Zinzendorf described the organization and evangelical manners of his colony of Moravian hermhutters. He consulted Albert with deference, respecting several difficulties, and wisdom seemed to speak by the mouth of Albert. The reason was that he was inspired by the presence and gentle glance of his friend. He seemed a god to Consuelo. For her, he united all fascinations, philosopher and artist, tried martyr, triumphant hero, grave as a sage of the portico, beautiful as an angel. Playful sometimes and artless as a child, as a happy lover, perfect in fine, as a man whom one loves. Consuelo had thought she should faint with fatigue and emotion when she knocked at the door of the temple. Now she felt strong and animated as at the time when she played upon the shore of the Adriatic, in all the vigor of youth, under a burning sun tempered by the sea breeze it seemed that life in all its power happiness in all its intensity had taken possession of her in every fiber and that she drew them in by every pore she no longer counted the hours she could have wished that this enchanted night would never end why can we not stop the sun beneath the horizon "'in certain watchings, when we feel life in all the fullness of our being, "'and when all the dreams of enthusiasm seem realized or realizable. "'At last, the sky was tinged with purple and gold. "'A silvery-toned bell warned the invisibles "'that night was withdrawing from them her protecting veil. "'They sang a last hymn to the rising sun.' emblem of the new day of which they dreamed and which they were preparing for the world. Then they bade tender farewells, made appointments for meeting, some at Paris, others at London, others at Madrid, Vienna, St. Petersburg, Warsaw, Dresden, Berlin, all engaged to be found in a year at such a day at the gate of the Blessed Temple with new neophytes, with ancient brothers now absent. Then they closed their cloaks in order to hide their elegant costumes, and noiselessly dispersed under the shady avenues of the park. Albert and Consuelo, guided by Marcus, descended the ravine as far as the stream. Carl received them in his closed gondola and conducted them to the pavilion, upon the threshold of which they stopped to contemplate the majesty of the luminary which was ascending the sky. Until then, Consuelo, when replying to Albert's impassioned words, had always given him his real name. But when he roused her from the contemplation, in which she seemed to forget herself, she could only say to him, as she rested her burning brow upon his shoulder, "'Oh, Liverani!' End of chapter 41, part 2.